Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Joseph Conrad spent much of his life on the water. He became a sailor at the age of 17, and his experiences at sea and abroad provided much of the inspiration for his later writing career. By the time he died in 1924, he had written 20 books, as well as many stories and essays. They were often regarded in the generation or so after him as adventure novels or sea stories or books that were geared toward boys. Uh, and that's because a lot of them do have, um, you know, these non-European uh, settings and feature sailors and so on. Um, but I would say that, you know, perhaps a better way to think about it is that his novels often have a kind of some sort of political element in them. I'm Maya Jasanoff. I'm a professor of history at Harvard. Conrad was writing in the late 19th and early 20th century during the height of European colonialism. Many European countries were establishing overseas colonies around the globe. In the late 1800s, Britain, France, Germany, Belgium, Spain, Portugal, and Italy were in the process of colonizing the African continent. They were after its rich resources like ivory, palm oil, cotton, gold, diamonds, and rubber. Conrad briefly worked on a Belgian steamship that was exporting ivory out of the Congo Free State, located in Central Africa. Conrad's best-known work is Heart of Darkness, which he first published in 1899, and is based on his experience in the Congo. The book has lent itself to many readings over the decades, first detached from its historical context, and then completely situated within it. It's often turned to as a primary source, really, for uh, European perspective, very critical perspective on the scramble for Africa, so-called, that unfolded in the last quarter of the 19th century. And every time I go back to it, I'm amazed at its brevity because it's really short. You know, it's a thin paperback. And the edition that I have sitting next to me right now, it's less than 90 pages. Um, and yet it's a text that just, you know, gives up so much meaning and has lent itself to so many different kinds of interpretations. And, I, you know, for me, that's really kind of a definition of quote-unquote great literature. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Maya Jasanoff to discuss Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. So Conrad didn't start his life as Conrad. Um, he started his life as Josef Theodor Conrad Korzeniowski as he was born in 1857 in present-day Ukraine. And his parents were Polish, he was Polish, uh, spoke Polish in his home, was Catholic. But having been born in Ukraine, which you know at the time was part of the Russian Tsarist Empire, as was Poland, um, he grew up in an environment of um, in which his parents were uh, felt intensely their own 
outsiderness or marginal position within the Russian Empire. So Poland had ceased to be a sovereign state at the end of the 18th century. It had been carved up by neighboring empires, including the Russians. And the ethnic Poles, Conrad included, living within the Russian Empire, you know, were, were very eager, many of them, not all of them, but many of them were eager to try to get Polish independence back. And Conrad's parents were um, fervent Polish nationalists. So he grew up in this atmosphere of intense Polish nationalism, but also thwarted Polish nationalism because uh, efforts to uh, have insurrections against the Russians uh, failed during uh, his childhood. And in uh, the process of all of this, his own father was um, was arrested by the Russian authorities uh, for sedition against the against the Tsarist Empire. So Conrad spent his early years, his childhood, um, most of them um, uh, as a kind of political exile with his parents in um, you know relatively remote parts of Russia where they were sent off as exiles because of their nationalist activity. And he was also orphaned very young. Both of his parents ended up contracting tuberculosis, dying very young. Uh, and so Conrad, as a you know, 11, 12-year-old, was left an orphan, raised then mostly by a maternal uncle, kind of shunted around from one schooling situation to another. Um, and then at the age of 16, uh, he decided to strike out in a completely different direction yet again, uh, and that uh, took shape in his desire to become a sailor. Now, it's a little remarkable that this boy who grew up in Central Europe, Central and Eastern Europe, you know, hundreds of miles away from the ocean, had gotten it into his head that what he really wanted above all else was to become a sailor. But, you know, the way that I think about it is that he had essentially being adrift before he even set foot on a ship. And for somebody who you know, was an orphan and uh, didn't have a, you know, had been raised to think that his his nation had been taken away from him and, you know, had been sort of shunted around from one location to another, it's sort of, I feel like it makes a kind of psychological sense that he wanted to kind of really get away from it all and, uh, and travel the, uh, the world. Conrad's maternal uncle and guardian supported this decision to become a sailor and provided young Conrad with a monthly stipend while he looked for a ship. Because he was fluent in French, Conrad traveled to Marseille, France, and began his career as a sailor on merchant ships. What was sailing industry like? Like, how was it that you, you know, you could run away from home and, you know, get on a boat and kind of make a living and have adventures? I think that his maternal uncle probably hoped when he first came up with this idea that it would be like the equivalent today of somebody wanting to take a gap year. You know, you think of you think of a lot of teenagers now who, uh, you know, want to see the world. You know, a lot of people want to, I mean, at any age, a lot of people want to see the world. And nowadays, of course, there are a whole range of ways you can do it if you belong to a relatively privileged economic class and, and have the resources to, to do things. Um, you know, Conrad, you know, he, he grew up in this very sort of self-consciously marginal way culturally. Um, he did, however, belong to a kind of hereditary landed elite. And um, although he would need to have paying work through his life, uh, he also did have the sort of backup resources of family money. Uh, so even though he then went and took a 
you know, really working class kind of job, um, he, he did have this kind of backup thing. So I think the analogies would be, if you look later into the 20th century, you know, people wanting to take a big road trip or go off and, you know, hike for a while or now take a gap year. Um, that's kind of what it started as. When he arrived in France, he knew almost nothing about sailing. I think the phrase learn the ropes, you know, is super relevant here because you literally have to learn the ropes on a ship. But pretty soon he ends up working on British ships. And that's, among other things, because Britain had the largest merchant fleet in the world at that time. Um, But the other point to make here is that in doing so, you know, there were a lot of other foreigners. And that's because this was a very big industry that needed to import labor, but also because it was pretty open. You know, you know, you could join, you could learn on the job and move move on up. So again, despite being hierarchical, you know, everyone can can move up. And by taking exams, which you could, you know, study for and put in your time at sea, you could move up the ranks. And that's what happens to young Konrad Korzeniowski over the years is that he ends up learning what he needs to do. He puts in his time on the ships, he takes the exams, and um, he ends up uh, becoming a certified captain in the British Merchant Marine. And over the course of these years, he will end up being a sailor for about 20 years. And over the course of this time, he also uh, builds uh, more and more of a kind of shore life in England, learns English, which he only starts learning in his early 20s, uh, and anglicizes his name. And so he'll end up, at the end of this time, uh, Joseph Conrad. Okay, so he he joins um, shipping, becomes a captain. How in the world did he start writing at the level that he ends up writing? What do you think is motivating him? Well, this is a kind of famously unanswerable question about Conrad, but I'll give it a shot, which is that... um, Well, okay. so the conventional answer might say something about how, look, sailors, like they're known for telling stories. They're known for filling the time by spinning yarns. And then not only do they have all this time on ship to do that, and they see a lot and they learn a lot and they encounter different people in different places, but then when they're on shore, they have all of this time between voyages. The thing that's particular to Conrad, however, is that he came from a literary family. His father was a writer. Uh, he wrote plays and he wrote poems and he did translations. In fact, he even translated Dickens into Polish. Uh, and Conrad was raised, you know, on a very substantial diet of Polish and French literature. And I think that that literary inheritance is probably really significant. Conrad started writing in the late 1880s. His first published work is believed to be a short story that he submitted to a contest in a sailing magazine. He published his first novel, Almayer's Folly, in 1894. In his works, Conrad often drew on personal experience. Several of his stories are set in Southeast Asia, a place he frequently traveled to on sailing voyages. He drew extensively on various encounters that he had during his years as a sailor. Uh, He even drew on various elements of that life before he became a sailor, sort of meditating in a couple of novels about uh, European revolutionaries and anarchists and nationalists and stuff like that. Almost all feature figures who are drawn together from a variety of different societies. You know, virtually none of his fiction is just sort of set in Britain or among British people exclusively. 
they usually have a much more diverse cast of characters. And it's for that reason that I argue, at least, that Conrad is really the first uh, writer who develops a kind of literature of modern globalization across his works because his works are set on a whole range of continents and, you know, feature a lot of the kind of systems and technologies and ideas that characterized the the world at the turn of the 20th century, which was one of increasing mobility and interconnection and also in various ways upheaval. So does he become successful and celebrated in his own life to the point where, you know, he can quit sailing and stuff and he just sort of sits in London and is a, um, uh, you know, a celebrated author? So Conrad is a great example of the kind of author who is, quote unquote, critically acclaimed, which often means they don't make money. Um, And in the first um, 20 years of his literary career, he did not make a lot of money, but he did get a lot of acclaim. I mean, he was recognized very early as somebody who was doing something different. So he had a lot of critical acclaim. Uh, He continued to publish at a rate which, of course, was not uncommon, I guess, at the time, but nowadays is pretty startling that that you know the major authors of the nineteenth century would put out a new novel almost every year, uh, and Conrad also was writing in a period when it was still uh, not uncommon to to write it in a serial form in a literary magazine first. So he's writing a lot, uh, and he is earning money off of writing and not sailing. But in fact, for the first several years of his career as a writer, he still talks about maybe having to go get a ship again. Um, and then it's only really on the eve of World War I that he achieves commercial success enough that he can stop worrying about money to the extent that he has been really throughout his adult life. Towards the end of his life and career, Conrad had several bestsellers, beginning with the novel Chance in 1913. But over time, many of his most successful works have faded into the background. Today, Heart of Darkness stands above as his most celebrated book. Heart of Darkness, like so much else of Conrad's fiction, is based in, to some extent, personal experience. And the personal experience was that in 1890, Conrad, who was at the time a sailor professionally, traveled to what was then called the Congo Free State as an employee of a company who, uh, a company involved in doing trade up and down the Congo River. This job was very different from his previous sailing gigs. Typically, Conrad would go on long ocean voyages on large sailboats. For this particular job, he was working on a steamboat traveling on a river. And so, you know, he goes into a working environment that is already, you know, pretty different from what he's done before. And it's also a region that he had never been to before, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. And it's a region that at the time was uh, being transformed by a colonial project that he saw firsthand and then captures with such critical acuity in his novel. Um, So the deal was that the Congo Free State had been carved out in the Berlin Congress in 1885, which had essentially this incredible act of, uh, you know, expropriative arrogance. European powers had just carved up sub-Saharan Africa and said, okay, you know, the Portuguese are there and the British are there and the French are there. And in the middle, there was this big tranche, uh, which was nominally independent, but 
administered under the supervision of King Leopold II of the Belgians. The Berlin Conference, also known as the Congo Conference, regulated the European powers in sub-Saharan Africa. Up until this point, European powers had tried to grab whatever they could on the continent, but there was no formal agreement over which territories belonged to whom. Disagreements began to arise, which were negatively impacting trade and resource extraction. In 1884, the Chancellor of Germany held the Berlin Conference to help establish European boundaries in Africa. The four main countries involved in this conference were Britain, France, Belgium, and Portugal. No African countries were consulted. France got northwestern Africa, Britain got South Africa up through Egypt, Belgium got Central Africa, which included the Congo Free State, and Portugal got the western and eastern edges of Africa. King Leopold II of Belgium controlled the Congo Free State from 1885 to 1908. He extracted ivory and rubber and enslaved the local population to process and export these resources. Leopold was so brutal that his rule in the Congo is known by some historians as Africa's Forgotten Holocaust. So it's a weird area because, in terms of colonialism, because it's putatively independent, but it has what we would now, I think, really readily recognize as a kind of multinational capitalism, you know, sweeping in and basically grabbing what it can, you know, really kind of shoestring white personnel, um, huge amount of coerced African labor. Uh, and at the time that Con uh, Conrad went, uh, the, the primary trading commodity that they were interested in was ivory. So there was a, an elaborate um, system where, you know, people agents kind of far up the river would get ivory and then they would ship it down the river and uh, back out to the you know seaport and then to Europe for export. Conrad was initially hired to command the steamer Florida up the Congo River, but when he arrived at the boat, it was seriously damaged and unfit for travel. He joined another steamer called King of the Belgians, commanded by Ludwig Rasmus Koch. So Conrad goes, it's 1890, he's supposed to stay for three years. Um, he very quickly uh, records his discontent with what he sees there. Having gone, I should add, thinking that he's going to be part of this great, you know, uh, sort of civilizing project, which is what everybody held up the Congo Free State as in the West. And he thinks, yeah, sure, you know, this is a place where, look, it's independent, but it's being administered, you know, with these, with certain values in mind. It's dedicated to not having slave labor. Uh, it's dedicated to, you know, building up, um, you know, infrastructure, et cetera, right? So he goes thinking he's going to find all that. And instead, he arrives and very quickly is, is dissatisfied. Instead, what he sees is a lot of Europeans abusing the native Africans. He shows up and he immediately starts noting in letters back to Europe and also in this diary that the, that the Europeans that he meets, he doesn't like them at all. He finds them, um, I think in part it's sort of snobbery and stuff, but he finds them very sort of rough and tumble characters and they are constantly fighting with each other and backstabbing and having little intrigues with each other. And then he also sees this violence along the way and I think it does make an impression on him. Then he goes on a ship. So um, the idea, the other thing with the Congo River and indeed any river is that um, while to those of us who are not sailors, um, it might seem that a river is a pretty straightforward thing to navigate. After all, it's a line. Uh, in fact, you know, any river has channels and 
branches and tributaries and all of that. And so you have to kind of learn, learn your way. And so Conrad goes up the river as a, just sort of watching what the captain is doing so that he can learn how to navigate it himself. And another notebook that he keeps on this trip has his maritime notes. And so we can see him making even little sketches of different bits of the river and noting down soundings for depth and so on. Conrad completed a round-trip journey up and down the river and then decided he had had enough. His three-year contract wasn't over and he had no other source of income, but the trip was so physically and psychologically miserable that it wasn't worth continuing. So he quits the job and uh, sails back to Europe. Um, and he never really, I mean, he does get another sailing job after that. But its um, I think it's a real turning point in his maritime career. It had been very difficult for him to get a job in the first place. And then he ends up on that. And it's a terrible experience. Uh, I should say, too, that Conrad suffered from what we can pretty obviously see as clinical depression. And he had a lot of mental breakdowns in his life. And he had a very significant one when he came back from Congo. When he returned to Europe in 1891, after his time in Congo, he took a couple other sailing jobs before fully retiring from the sea. He decided to focus on writing and began publishing novels. In the late 1890s, he began working on Heart of Darkness. And in 1899, he published the story serially. Heart of Darkness roughly follows the line of a river. Um, in, it, it narrates the voyage of an old seaman named uh, Charles Marlowe, who captains a steamboat on a river in Africa and tells a group of former sailors about it while sitting on the deck of a pleasure boat in the Thames estuary many years later. So there's a frame narrative, which is Marlowe sitting on this ship in the Thames with a bunch of friends who are all former sailors. And then embedded within that, there's the main story, which is the story of going up and down this river in Africa. Um, the fundamental point, though, of Marlowe's journey is different from Conrad's and is very important. Marlowe goes up and down the river, but he does it with an objective in mind. And he's supposed to retrieve from the farthest upriver point uh, a rogue agent of a European trading company. This agent has been trading ivory, has collected a lot of ivory, is believed to be enormously successful as a collector of ivory, but he has also adopted methods which are described by one of the characters in the book as unsound. And the result is that there are other agents of the company who want to have him removed. So Marlowe's journey takes place in a bunch of stages, but one of the things that's kind of amazing about it is that uh, along the way, up the river, he also learns more and more about this person whose name is Kurtz. And in fact, Marlowe and Kurtz are the only characters, if I'm not much mistaken, who have names in the book. Everybody else is referred to by some kind of epithet. So you get this sense that as he's going up the river and as he's seeing more and more of the unnamed African country that he's in, he's getting closer and closer to this, you know, distant goal that's that's becoming clearer and clearer 
as he goes along. I mean, sort of like when you're approaching an object from far away and it, you gain resolution on it. That, that, is what work, that is what happens with Marlowe as he learns about Kurtz going up the river. Heart of Darkness begins with Marlowe telling his small audience of friends how he got the job in the first place. He describes getting the job. He describes going to the corporate headquarters. He describes hearing about the ambitions of this company to civilize uh, the the people among whom they're working, etc. He then will travel to the river in question in Africa. Again, none of this is named. I mean, I say Africa because we understand it to be Africa, but it is not actually named. Uh, he, so there's another phase where he's on a ship traveling to the mouth of the river. Then there's the phase where he has to work his way up the rapids to get to another, uh, you know, from the mouth of the river inland a bit. He pauses there for a while. He discovers that the ship that he's supposed to, the boat that he's supposed to be taking up the river is actually damaged and it's going to take some time for it to be repaired. So he's in this place for quite a while, at least a month. Um, and, um, you know, interacting with the with the European agents there. He then starts traveling in the boat. Uh, and again, it's funny because even though this story is often thought of as a story about somebody going up and down a river. In fact, the journey on the river is only, you know, maybe half of the book at most, you know, it's a lot of it is kind of built up. Um, then as he's on the boat going up the river, there are also kind of stops along the way, um, including to get wood. Uh, there's episodes. It's again, it has a little bit of the feel of a sort of Odyssey-like story where there are these various, you know, episodes that happen, encounters that happen. They get attacked by people on shore at one point. Um, and then finally, he does reach what's called the inner station, um, which is the, again, un, uh, non-specific name given to the place that uh, that, that Conrad would have would have uh, traveled to that we now know of as Kisangani. Uh, and it's there that he encounters Kurtz um, two-thirds of the way through the book. So what, what does he learn about Kurtz when he arrives? So one of the things about this book that's um, intriguing to some readers and maddening to others is that it's all wreathed in this kind of um, sense of foreboding, oh, Kurtz, he's up there. He's very special. He's very remarkable. He's very unusual. He's all these things. And you never really get a clear sense of what's going on. And uh, part of it is, of course, deliberate. That is, Conrad wants to create this kind of sense of mystery. Um, but it's never quite fully resolved. I mean, we know what we learn later is that Kurtz has an idea of the civilizing mission, as it was known in European parlance at the time, that appears to involve some combination of an incredible cult of personality with an almost genocidal impulse. And we learn this because Kurtz has written a report that he's planning to give to something called, I think, the Society for the Suppression of Savage Customs. And in this report, there's a lot, which Marlowe sees, there's a line in which he says, exterminate all the brutes. So he writes this report about, quote unquote, the suppression of savage customs in which, you know, there's a line in a kind of cover memo for it that says, exterminate all the brutes. And this kind of, again, genocidal impulse is... Um, you know, very uh, scary to to Marlowe. And um, Marlowe, in fact, will end up uh, 
censoring it, so to speak. I mean, when he brings Kurtz, so he brings Kurtz back down the river, and as he does so, Kurtz dies uh, on the journey. Uh, and Marlowe is therefore left to uh, dispense with Kurtz's worldly goods, which include mostly some letters and papers and things. And the book actually ends with Marlowe going back to what he calls the sepulchral city, which um, is the word he, uh, the phrase that, that he uses to describe what we can take to be Brussels. And while he's there, he visits, uh, he gets a visit from a cousin of Kurtz's. He talks to someone from the, you know, involved in this project in, in Africa. And he also visits Kurtz's fiance and he gives back the various things that, you know, Kurtz's papers, but as he does so, he actually sort of covers up some of what has happened. So famously, while Kurtz is dying, he has a kind of vision and he whispers in his dying breaths, the words, the horror, the horror. And when Marlowe visits Kurtz's fiance back in the sepulchral city and she says, you know, what did he say? Marlowe pauses and he says, you know, the last words he spoke were your name. So he kind of hides this. And then um, the book ends on that note, except it pulls back out for just a brief moment so that we see Marlowe again as through the eyes of the frame narrator on the deck of the Nelly, the name of the pleasure boat in the Thames, and it wraps the story up again in this encasing frame narrative. Heart of Darkness was not critically acclaimed in Conrad's life. It received little commentary, and Conrad himself didn't think it was his best work. But over the years, critics have returned to the work with several different interpretations. You know, for, for a while, Conrad's text was understood to be a meditation on the human condition that could be read in a manner quite detached from historical context. And that squared with a particular critical instinct that prevailed in the middle of the 20th century called the New Criticism. And Conrad was celebrated by some mid-century critics because of the psychological depth of his works and so on, but was also, in this way, cut off from some really important historical realities that shaped the conditions of possibility and production of his work. So in the late 70s, or in the 70s, the Nigerian author Chino Achebe, seeing that there was all of this critical work about Heart of Darkness that was being held up as this great sort of parable about, you know, good and evil, about savagery and civilization, about the savage instincts that lurk within every human being, pointed out, look, guys, you know, you're, you're creating this seeming universal on the back of the crudest racist stereotypes about Africa that are embedded in the history of European colonialism and uh, violence and oppression. So in a really blistering and forceful and vital critique, Achebe said, you know, this is not some like universal parable about savagery and civilization. This is one European man looking at Africa and being completely unable to reckon with the humanity of Africans. And Conrad was a bloody racist, as Achebe put it. 
So that, of course, immediately shifted the the focus of discussion about Conrad. And, you know, I certainly am one of the many, many, many people out there who would not teach Heart of Darkness without also teaching a Chebe's essay at this point. Um, and so it completely transformed the discussion around Conrad and around this text in particular and is really uh, significant in the genesis of post-colonial literary criticism and much, much more. I think we can then detect this, this later move in the 90s with Hochschild's King Leopold's Ghost and Lindqvist's Exterminate All the Brutes, where we see a more careful rendering of Conrad and the text of Heart of Darkness as a historical text. And again, looking at the ways in which it does and doesn't map onto the realities of Congo and at the time. And that correlates in turn, I think, with another major sort of trend line in literary criticism, which is the new historicism, where, you know, from the 90s to really the present, I think that uh, nowadays it's it's extremely common for literary critics in the U.S. at least to, to look at texts in their historical context. And Heart of Darkness, you know, has become a great sort of um, exemplar of how that can be done. We've had the reading of Heart of Darkness that detaches it completely from its context. We've had readings of Heart of Darkness that situate it completely in its historical context. And I think now, as we um, are thinking again, uh, or in, 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 you know, in a later generation of thinking about the legacies of colonialism and racism and slavery, uh, the question is where do we, you know, where do we put Heart of Darkness now? Um, and um, and I think that you know, there's there's no single right answer to this. I think that it still repays reading, um, but I think that uh, you know, its manifest limitations have to be called attention to, and. It's not a text that should ever stand in isolation. I mean, one should always be reading other things as well. You know, if I'm understanding you, it was celebrated in the West um, because it was, yeah, you know, you you said it, sort of seen as this universal um, parable that evil can lurk in the heart of anyone. Um, But the post-colonial critique is like, no, 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 hold on, hold on. Like, nobody did this to, like, Africa except you guys. Um, so, you know, it's sort of, it helps us resist um, maybe apologizing for historical wrongs because, well, you know, and, you know, all humans are bad or something. I guess what I would say is this, that, okay, so we had the, we had a moment in which Heart of Darkness was celebrated as the universal a portrayal of something universal that was rightly thrown out in favor of a reading that saw Heart of Darkness as a testimony, testimonial of European racism. And that was important and resonant. For me, reading now in the 21st century, as we think about the society we're living in now and the you know many ramifying effects of uh, empire and decolonization and racism and immigration and all the rest of it one of the things that i'm most uh, drawn to in this text is that relationship between the frame narrative and the inner narrative that you know conrad is saying 
that the Thames flows into the Congo in various ways and, and the Congo back into the Thames. And, you know, I think that that sense of the interconnectedness of regions, not an easy interconnection and not one that we can necessarily get behind, you know, Conrad's picture of, but I think that that's, I think that's actually sort of in a certain central way kind of right. I mean, that is that, you know, he's he's pointing to a kind of blowback, if you will, of colonization on the metropole, uh, which at the time was really quite radical. Um, and I think that, you know, if you look at, for example, Britain today, which is the post-colonial uh, European society, which is the European former imperial society that I know most about, I mean, you know, we can see in Britain today this incredible kind of ignorance about the imperial past and and kind of an amnesia about all kinds of things that happened in the era of the British Empire. And I, I mean, in this regard, I think it's like more important than ever that we pay attention to the ways in which empire constituted Britain as it is today. And that a lot of these uh, links really need to be sort of um, well, first of all, just illuminated and elucidated and taught about, and then we need to think about what the what to do with them. Do we see its influence more widely in culture? Are there are there movements that it's a part of that contributed to the world that we, you know, might recognize, um, or different aspects of the world that we might recognize? So one thing to say about Heart of Darkness is that it has lent itself to adaptation quite fluidly. Uh, the phrase itself has become a catchphrase. Um, most famously, it was taken up and reworked in the movie Apocalypse Now, which transposes the novel to Vietnam. Uh, it's a brilliant movie about a really suggestive book. And um, I find nowadays when I talk to people that they're much more likely to be familiar with Apocalypse Now, and that's how I can explain to them who Conrad is uh, than, than simply by mentioning the novel Heart of Darkness. Um, so I think it, you know, as a as a catchphrase that connotes something about what happens when Europeans run amok in um, kind of neo-imperial and colonial situations, I think we definitely see a kind of resonance there. Um, the concept of going rogue is something that I think Heart of Darkness really captures that we see resonating a lot, and it will often be invoked in that context. Um, we see it, of course, being something that writers continue to engage with. And I would note that a number of African writers have engaged with the text and sort of pushed back against it. So it continues to be a source of stimulation for writers of fiction. What do you think is the value of the document as a historical testament? Um, and and like, what what does it teach us about colonialism that we are continually least in the West, liable to forget. It was published in 1899 in a, in a magazine, Blackwell's Magazine, and then in a book form in 1902. And in that time, something happened in Britain uh, with respect to Congo, which is that the economy of the Congo Free State, which had been ivory-based when Conrad went in 1890, had shifted within a decade to becoming rubber-based. And the rubber industry in Congo was unbelievably violent and brutal in its methods of um, uh, labor. In a, the, the, the labor regime was incredibly violent and brutal and became the subject of 
an outcry that was led by, among others, British activists. In fact, quite notably, a British activist and, in fact, an acquaintance of Conrad's called Roger Casement. But others got in on this as well. Mark Twain, for example, became uh, part of uh, what in the early years of the 20th century was organized into a kind of campaign against the abuses in Congo and ultimately led to the... uh, uh, ultimately led to King Leopold stepping back and to the Belgian government stepping in. So there was this big international outcry against what was happening in Congo. And against that backdrop, Part of Darkness appears, and it chroni- but it chronicles a different historical moment. And I guess what I think about here is that when, so when the British, and for that matter the Americans, were castigating Leopold and his agents in Congo for their abuses. They themselves were imperial powers. You know, the British and the Americans were imperial powers. And it fed a self-flattering image of British imperialism or American imperialism as being better. And that has persisted. That you, you find that all the time now. People will routinely say, you know, oh, but, you know, you think the British were bad, just look at the Belgians or just look at the Japanese, right? I mean, that's what they'll always say. And so I guess, you know, in in response to your question about historical forgetting and manipulation and all of that, I would say that for me, Conrad's text is, let's return it to, in this one respect and in this one respect only, let's return it to that universalist thing. And let's say that even though there are ways embedded in the text that Conrad is also saying British imperialism is better than all the others, and Conrad himself certainly believed that and so on, let's remember that he took the names out for a reason. Uh, I, I mean, let's remember that the names are taken out. And let's remember that when you take the names out, you can't any longer play that game of like, okay, we're all bad, but you're worse than I am. Although Conrad and Heart of Darkness has had varying reception over the years, its influence remains. And one of its biggest influences goes back to Conrad writing from personal experiences, writing about the abuses he saw, and opening his European readers' eyes to the harm their people were committing. It made readers in the West, people in the West, who were very self-confident about their position in the world, realize that what was happening over there, as they would put it, could also have really powerful and not entirely positive effects on what was happening over here. Writ Large is produced by Jack Pombriant, Liza French, and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Farron Du. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.